to the Gospel of John and read from chapter 1 of John's Gospel through verse 18. So here is what Moses writes, the first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now to John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not made anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth through, came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Thank you for honoring God's word. You may be seated. So having looked at these recent weeks, what it means to really be a follower of Jesus from Luke 6, we pivot now to what we commonly call the doctrine of creation. That it was many years ago now that uh, a mentor of mine, I was in high school, maybe a sophomore or something, and we're sitting down there at the uh, cafe over breakfast, and he says to me, you know, you really need to understand the first three chapters of the Bible. Uh, there's so much about life in those first three chapters, who we are as humans, what the world is about, what went terribly wrong, how we're redeemed. If you can really grapple with the first three chapters of the Bible, you'll understand a whole lot about God and about the world in which we inhabit. And, you know, that really started a quest for me those 20 years ago, and I found that to be not only true, uh, but a, a, um, a word of insight that has just been a great blessing to my life, that the more I spend time in these opening chapters of the Bible, the more I learn about God and about the world and about uh, my, my own fallen nature and who God is and who I am. And that's our prayer in this series in these next eight weeks or so to really uh, take a real effort in looking at the opening chapters of the Bible to see what it tells us about God, who we are before him, and who we are uh, in this world for the time that we have. Now, in order to start on this series, you say today will be a little bit unusual in that I feel the need, uh, because of the time in which we live, to make a series of preface comments. In other words, um, those opening four words where we'll spend most of our time are actually quite controversial, aren't they? In the beginning, 
God, or the first five words, in the beginning God created. You say, when you say those words, you're immediately creating a tension with uh, what uh, a number, a lot of people that we are side by side with, uh, what they believe about origins. So again, bear with me today. We're going to spend really time on those first five words, in the beginning God created. And uh, from that will lead uh, the rest of the series. So as terms of preface comments, let's uh, just begin with an open question. And that is that I think every person should have an interest in human origins. You even see the recent uh, interest, I would say the last decade or so, this resurgence in genealogical studies. Say people like to know where they come from. Where's my ancestry? What were my forebears like? You know, I see, I think in this interest, Uh, this interest in genealogies is there for a very particular reason. You see, where we've come from, we have a sense that that's going to tell us what to do now. That the origin of something, how it was birthed, uh, where it came from, tells us a lot about its purpose, right? So how a thing is made tells us what it's used for today. In other words, I think that the question of where we came from as humans is kind of um, inseparable from what it means to be human today, that we have to have some answer to this question. Or you could put it even more broadly, that all of us at some time in our life, we wake up and we have to ask the question, why is there something rather than nothing? That you travel uh, the country at holiday times of holidays and vacations, of course, in normal times or in your past, you've taken trips and you gaze upon God's splendor. You gaze upon the splendor of the natural world. You see mountains and rivers and the power of water, even as recently as last Monday. And you look at this and say, isn't it something? Isn't it marvelous that there's something rather than nothing? How did all this get here? Why am I drawn towards it? Why do I, am I attracted to the beauty of the human mind or beauty at all? Why are there beautiful things that my eyes like to look at? You say, and on and on it goes. Why is there something rather than nothing? Who am I? Where did I come from? When I answer those, don't I see that it informs me about how I live? You know, to extrapolate that a bit, something I picked up from the apologist Ravi Zacharias, he says, really, they're inescapable questions that every person should answer, and they have to do with origins, meaning, morality, and destiny. He says those four areas, I've used that in a number of different settings on college campuses to say, think about this, origins, meaning, morality, and destiny. Or another way of saying, we all want to know where we came from. We all want to know the connected question is, what am I supposed to do with my life? That's meaning or purpose. Morality, how am I to behave? Are there certain behaviors that are out of bounds? What's in bounds? What's the right thing to do? Who gets to tell me the right things to do and what's not the right thing to do? So we long for a moral code. And lastly, um, destiny. Where am I going to go when I die? Uh, Those are not religious questions, but these are questions that every person has to answer. And in these opening chapters of Genesis, in the doctrine of creation, we have those answers. This is where we came from. This is our purpose. This is how we're to live. This is what is inbounds. This is what's out of bounds. And this is ultimately what you're made to do and where you're going to be in the end as we listen to God. So we need to answer the question of origins. It's part of being human. And here we turn our focus to what Scripture actually says. Now, preface comment number two. What happens a lot when we already, your minds are going there, maybe you see when we've announced this series, you said Genesis 1 to 3, you know, what's he going to say about this, that, and the other, as specific uh, to science? And here's what happens, is we say the scientific enterprise has given us so many wonderful things that many of the best minds 
have devoted their entire lives to thinking scientifically about the natural world and about how things work. You say there is loads and loads of literature, uh, tons of libraries filled with scientific facts and data and good information. And what we try to do then is try to fit as much of that as possible in this relatively small section of scripture. Really, in my Bible, just about one and a half pages, two pages, something like that. You say, how does this, all of this science relate to this little bit? And I think that this quote, what I'm trying to say is captured in a quote from a 19th century uh, theologian named Alexander McLaren. He says this about these chapters. We're not to look at Genesis for a scientific cosmogony and are not to be disturbed by physicists' criticisms on it as such. Its purpose is quite another and far more important, namely, to imprint deep and ineffaceable the conviction that the one God created all things. See, I think McLaren is absolutely correct. In other words, that we have a lot of really in-depth uh, physics and a lot of really in-depth chemistry and geology and astronomy and all these great scientific enterprises, and it's uh, very nuanced. And what we try to say is, is that what the Genesis 1 and 3 is talking about? And McLaren's saying no, that we have to remember who's the Bible about. Is the Bible about us? Is it a book about science? Is it a book of data? We say no, the Bible is a book about God. It is chiefly God's self-disclosure to us. This is God saying, this is what you need to know about me. And sometimes we become so impatient, we say, well, what does it say about us, or what does it say about this, that, or this topic? You say, it's not something to just be kind of picked and pigeonholed into other disciplines, but rather we're to take it for what it is. This is the God who made us. This is how he's revealed himself to us, that this, first and foremost, is a theological text. And so many of us get bent out of shape uh, when we hear uh, a new thing in science come along and we say oftentimes that those new scientific developments don't threaten at all what Genesis 1 to 3 is saying. That the one God created all things. We're here for his glory. This is who we are. Say these are the fundamental facts that scripture commits us to and we shouldn't make the Bible into a scientific textbook. That it is not. And if we try to do that, then I think that we commit a great error. And that moves into preface comment number three, is that many people see science and faith as enemies, or we should say science and God. And you know the, the story, you'll talk to somebody who's not a Christian, they say, oh, all the thinking people are over here, and they're the ones who take science seriously, and data and facts, they're in that realm. And then you have all the Christians over here, and they're, they're the... Uh, the weirdos who just kind of believe in all these myths and and that's the divide the two can never meet and you say that is that is just not fair you say the two can work really well together that science is a way of looking at data that in and of itself the scientific enterprise brings no values uh, that it's about information it's about facts and over here we're talking about God who made the world and gave us the laws I like the way John Lennox puts this he says you know um, to pit God against uh, science is like pitting Henry Ford against engineering. He says that makes no sense at all. We don't want to confuse agency and laws. In other words, what we're learning here in Genesis 1 to 3 is that there's a God who made everything, and he's a really smart, intelligent being who imposed laws on the universe. Say that's the agent of everything. Scientific laws are what God gave us. To say that those two are enemies 
is not fair. They actually are very good friends. And as you talk, I hope in the course of these upcoming weeks that um, you know, we'll be able to hear from some in the church family who say, actually, my science and my faith work together, that my faith makes me appreciate science all the more. And when I study science and laws and looking at the universe, that it helps, in fact, encourages my faith. And this is true in history, that anyone who dabbles in the history of science uh, sees how this incompatibility thesis that is driving science and God apart is not true. And somebody like Peter Harrison, who's an eminent historian of science, just listen to the titles of his books, The Bible, Protestantism, and The Rise of Natural Science. Or again, listen to this title, The Fall of Man and the Foundations of Science. That is, to Harrison and others who look at all the famous scientists, the start in the 16th and 17th centuries of the scientific enterprise, you say most of them, almost all of them, are theists. That they did science precisely because they were theists. In other words, they looked out at the world, they say, we believe in God, that God is a God of order, he's given us this world to contemplate, something like Psalm 111 and verse 2, blessed are those who look on the works of the Lord and study them, say they're operating in that framework, and out of the framework of believing in God, they did good science. That the non-compatibility thesis has emerged really in the 19th century, that it's a relatively modern convention that again says there's reasonable people over here and faith people over here. You say that is not the historic position uh, which we find. And again, it commits the error of confusing God the agent which the law, with the laws and the facts that he gave us. All right, moving forward, preface comment four. We need to approach this text with some degree of modesty because it stands out in the Bible as being distinct. You say, well, why is that? Because by definition... The part of the Bible that we read here today, this morning, is actually a part that has no human witnesses. That if you notice that this leads up to the creation of human beings, that sets it apart. That it sets it apart as being a distinct text. Why? Because there's no one around to witness this. In fact, even going a bit further in Genesis, that we know we have Noah's flood, uh, the flood in chapters uh, 6 and 4. And we have a word for this in the English language. We say anything that happened before the flood is what we call antediluvian, a fancy word for before the flood. You say there's dramatic uh, catastrophe early on as scripture witnesses, and I think we need to be incredibly modest about the conclusions uh, that we draw from this early part of the Bible. So we don't want to do what's called over-interpreting. You see, over-interpreting is making the Bible say something that it doesn't. And so we always think, well, the Bible can, th this is, uh, has to be the case, and it's not really in the text, but we overinterpret it to say that, and we create problems that need not be there. And it helps us to think through, you know, what do we really mean by inspired? Say so we uphold the inspiration, the, the infallible word of God here, say so we believe this is an authority from God, but what do we mean by that? Does it mean divine dictation? In other words, did God say to Moses, now this word? Now this word, now this word. You say, that's not what really anyone means by inspiration. What we mean is that God chose the man Moses with his personality, who he was before God, and used him to communicate the things that God wanted by the means of his spirit. That's what we mean by inspiration. So I just a caution here about over-interpreting the text. Uh, does the Bible 
is this really what it says when we get into later? Say, well, about the length of the days. Uh, how do we hold that argument? With what degree of conviction uh, are we in, at times over-interpreting what the Bible says? So this is antediluvian. There are no human witnesses. We come to it with a degree of modesty. Modesty. We want God to speak, and we don't want to be influenced by other voices, be they scientific or those uh, from the side of theology, whoever it would be. But we want the word of God to speak, knowing that it's about him, and to understand how inspiration works and how Moses would have come about this um, information many years beyond. And then a last preface comment again. Thank you for kind of allowing me to this introduction because of the times in which we live. But some will say, well, do you think Genesis 1 to 3 is, is a, a fable that it's made up? We say, well, no. I think that Genesis 1 to 3 is what we call historical narrative, that we have real places. Later, we're going to get some named rivers. Uh, we have Adam and Eve named persons. When you look at the New Testament and how Jesus and Paul think about this passage of the Bible, which comes up over and over again throughout Scripture, that they consider it to be real places in real real times and, and, and real events and say that is our position, that this is historical narrative. It's not uh, a myth. It's not a fable. Now, that being said, that we run into a little bit of trap, or I do. So people will come to me and say something like this. Do you take the Bible literally? And my answer to that is yes. I think the way you're asking that is, is yes. I take the Bible for what it says, that I believe that it uh, tells uh, truth, real times, real people, real places, the miracles are real, and all of that, if that's what you mean. But here's why that's tricky. If someone by that means that the Bible is not allowed to use certain literary devices, then that uh, becomes a problem. So I'll just take you back to last week. Remember last week's passage in Luke chapter 6. You remember what Jesus says. We need to be trees who bear good fruit, and we're to be buildings on a solid foundation. Now, if someone asked me about last week, say, do you take that literally? I would say, yes. Jesus really spoke those words. Um, he's really commanding his followers to be obedient, to live lives that represent him well. And he does this uh, by using the metaphor of a tree and its fruit, or in another case, of a building on a foundation. So, when I say literal, I don't mean that Jesus is saying, well, I want all of my followers to start growing apples and peaches out their fingertips. You say that would be the wrong sense of what he's saying there. I take it literally, but taking it literally allows the author to use literary devices, that it does not infringe upon historical narrative. So what am I trying to say? Genesis 1 to 3 is history. There's real people in real places. It also is in a culture was written in a culture of the ancient Near East, and there are different themes and images and literary devices that Moses drew upon in order to communicate his message, and that does not compete with historical narrative. So these things being said, we'll now evaluate uh, in more depth the claim being made here in these first five words. In the beginning, God created. Very clear statement on origins from the word of God that this is what we call Christian theism. As we'll see, actually, the Trinity is at play in this. But in the beginning, God, he's already there. And I think this is so important because when it comes to origins, again, taking us back, a question that everyone needs to answer, when it comes to origins, we don't have that many choices. 
as to how or why there's something rather than nothing. So let's go to first two on your sheet are actually uh, rarely held. Uh, the first would be what you look in the ancient world is a lot would fall into the, the category of pagan myth. That you go back several thousand years, even let's take the other religions at the time that Moses is writing. So you look at other ancient Near Eastern religions, be you know Babylonian religions and things of that nature. You say what you have is a competition among embodied gods. So there are different gods who have uh, physical presences that they get angry at one another, and one god um, destroys another god and kind of out of the entrails of that deceased God, out of the physical remains of a deceased God, emerges the universe. Uh, this is quite common in the ancient Near East. Now, you say there's a problem with that because we say, well, the gods are embodied, they're limited, they have a fixity of location, and uh, given the fact uh, that, that, um, you know, that that is untenable, uh, physical gods uh, from whom uh, different matter emerged, you say very, uh, it's rare now that those would hold, uh, hold position on pagan myth as being origins. You say not many in Avon or Westlake or wherever you live would adhere to that view of origins, say uh, uh, rarely held today. So then you go to another alternative, and this becomes more popular with the, you know, say the Greek philosophers, is that matter must be eternal. You say, you look around again, you say, look at the vastness of the universe, you look at the beauty of our own state, and you say, well, how did all this come about? Um, it must always have been there. And so you have different positions on this, like the steady state theory or that matters always been there. It's just, it, it, it's the one positive, it's eternal. Now, what happened to that? That in the 20th century, that you have uh, a increasing evidence from scientists on both sides of the fate divide who now say, and rather convincingly, that the universe had a beginning, that it came from an explosion, if you will, that it burst on the scene, whatever language that you would use, but that matter can no longer be viewed as eternal, that very few people hold that view today, that say most would, would say because of the expanding universe, uh, the rates of expansion, and what we know that, that actually there was a beginning. Now I pause here because think about what that breakthrough in the last 100 years. That you say if you have a whole lot of enlightened people being convinced that matter is eternal, you say we don't need God for origins then, but then science says actually there was a beginning, you say think about what happened there that the scientific enterprise moved the consensus in the direction of what the Bible says. So science, in that instance, made a big move towards what the Bible's always taught. So you have a lot of people say, well, I'm very nervous as a Christian as to how I'm to treat science. Is it always, you know, kind of coming in at us and, and uh, you know, pushing God out and so forth? You say, not really. You say, uh, in, in things like genetics, and in this instance, more about that in a moment, you'll see science moving the consensus towards the position the Bible's always taught. Now, position number three, say, okay, nobody is really in the pagan myth camp, nobody's really in the matter, has always been their camp. So then you go to choice three, and this is the prevailing view by non-Christians, I think, and that is that it's just blind chance, that we don't really want to talk about it, uh, we just know that this kind of spontaneously happened, that um, not from nothing came everything, and that's all we can really say. 
And I'll just read this to you. This is from an atheistic scientist named Lawrence Krauss, who was many years at Case Western here in our own city. And listen to what Krauss says. All signs suggest a universe that could and plausibly did arise from a deeper nothing, involving the absence of space itself. The very distinction between something and nothing has begun to disappear. Now, I don't mean to pick on Krauss, but Krauss teaches us a very important lesson, and it's this. Nonsense is still nonsense when it's spoken by very smart scientists. He's saying that there's no difference between something and nothing, and all he can say is, well, must be that everything came from a deeper nothing. You say there's not much meat to that. More importantly is that with this view of blind chance, you start to run into real problems. So take, for example, consciousness. The fact that we, homo sapiens, are rather sophisticated beings who are conscious, a word that we have a very tough time defining. Say everybody believes in consciousness, but they have a very difficult time defining it. And so what we're saying is a uh, nothing without any agency, uh, starting with not even space itself, somehow produced conscious beings. You say, now if that's not a leap of faith, I don't know what is. And this is why if you're a Christian theist and you take science seriously, you say, well, again, hold these two. Which one is more of a faith commitment to say absolutely nothing, not even space itself, somehow produced consciousness at a very high level, or to say there must be a very smart, intelligent being who spoke these things into existence and we share in who he is, even in our intellects. You know, I'll let you choose which is more cogent. Now, not only consciousness, but something like ethics, which we talked about last week when we talked about foundations. You say ethics become very messy. You start to say, wait a second, if everything's here by chance, uh, we just emerge from the soup, then how really do we get to right and wrong, that we start to have problems with morality? And again, since I've talked a lot about that, we don't need, to, don't need to hone in on that, but you see what I mean. Everything's by chance. So who's to say one person's way of doing things is better than another person's way of doing things? Why can't I just be a law unto myself? What's keeping me accountable? Or how about another area you run into? Say, if you're saying it's all blind chance, how about what we've always called reason? or cognitive abilities. Do you see how those who, uh, you know, I, you have to note the irony in something like this, that you'll often see a debate. And on the one side is the Christian theist, and on the other side is the naturalist who believes that we're here by blind chance. And hopefully, I think the, the only reason you do debate, um, why do you debate publicly, is to arrive at the truth, right? That you try to say, well, one way, one position is right and one position is wrong. That's the whole point of it. But you notice the irony of the naturalist who thinks everything is by chance. You say, how does he even know that his own position that he thinks is reasonable is not just the result of blind chance? Then in other words, he, he would just say, look, the position of the theist that he's arrived at has all come by chance, by just sheer naturalistic processes of evolution, and his position of being a non-theist came about by just the same way. How in the world do you debate the truth in, a, in an arena where you're saying everything's happened by chance. In other words, it's very odd that if you say that we're all here, we just kind of emerge, that it undermines reason and truth itself. So it's very hard to even advance your position. Alternatively, you're a Christian. You say, well, actually, I believe truth is in the person of Jesus. 
that there's a real place to say point to this is how we govern our lives this is the true north now I bring that up to arrive finally at I think the fourth position you have that's something like Judeo-Christian theism that there's a really smart supremely good and supremely smart and powerful being who by fiat created everything from nothing that this is the true reality again think of those four choices ladies and gentlemen again pagan myth gods duking it out with their bodies and out of that somehow uh, spawns the universe that matters eternal fine but going against the scientific consensus of a beginning blind chance but if it's blind chance think about what that means for how you live in the world or judeo-christian theism there's a really smart human being who ordered everything who gave us minds who gave us consciousness and in him we live and have our being now a few more notes here on this before we get into the person of God a bit more is that I want to re you to realize again to, to come back to this point about how we need not be afraid of certain scientific breakthroughs but actually to see that they're a friend to the church so here's back in the 1980s there's a man named Sir John Maddox who's an eminent scientist a British scientist uh, he was editor of the periodical called Nature a leading scientific journal and this was around the time where what was known as the Big Bang started to uh, become more popular to say, well, actually, the Big Bang is true. Now, John Maddox, Sir John Maddox, writes an essay saying we can't possibly publish the Big Bang in nature because it looks too much like the Bible. In other words, it's conceding too much ground to Genesis. And, of course, this became a very... Um, uh, unfavorable mark on the resume of an otherwise distinguished scientist and you think about again what's happened there is to say we want to see when there's scientific breakthroughs to see some of them a lot of them actually point us towards God that the Big Bang would be an instance of that so here you have the scientific community who once all believed that matter was eternal to say look everything burst on the scene at once and we look down at our Bibles in the beginning God created, and it was there. Do you see how those two can actually work together? Now, there's an objection. Uh, I say, well, maybe you can think of other ways of thinking of origins other than the four that I gave, and we can talk about that through email this week or wherever. But there's a couple of objections here, and in inevitably, uh, inevitably this one comes. They say, okay, you, you've made a good case for Judeo-Christian theism that there must be a God who's uh, before everything, who spoke things into existence, but who made God? You get that question a lot. But you say there's a bit of a fallacy in that because what's that person done when they ask that question? That they're making God one of the created things. You say, okay, you're positing a God, but who made him? You say, that's not the claim of Scripture. That's not the claim of the Christ follower. You say, there's a God who's uncreated, that he's eternal and everlasting. He's not in a category of other things. So people will talk that way. You say, okay, you believe in God. Well, prove it. And what they mean is we'll say, I'll just grab a bit of God and throw him under the microscope because after all, he's just a created thing like other created things. You say, no, he, he's not that. He's beyond created matter. He's in himself. He's before all things. He's eternal. That he can, He's not, by definition, among created things. So the very question, well, who created God, is not allowing for the category of an uncreated being which is precisely the claim that we're making now objection built on that they say well 
um, you know, you, you seem to come to that position by a presupposition or, or by faith. And I say that's right. And here's why. Every view of looking at the world has assumptions brought to the table. Since God cannot be proven scientifically one way or the other, you say to not believe in God, that is to have a, a position on origins, the blind chance position, is also a position of faith. That you see how those, that knife cuts both ways. You say, either I believe in a God who's beyond time, and that's how I make most sense of the world, or you say that everything came from nothing without any agent and without space at all. You say both are assumptions. The question is, which assumption makes most sense with how we live in the world and how we understand the world. And I'm telling us this morning that in the beginning God created makes a lot more sense for how we live and the world in which we live than saying that it's all by chance. And I think that those who do say we're all here by chance actually end up living inconsistently with their presupposition because they believe in things like reason and consciousness and ethics, which again can only come from chance or the ether. Uh, so all philosophical positions, if you study philosophy, you might know these as axioms or mathematical axioms. You say there are some base principles. Every field of study, every way of looking at the world has to posit some truths upon which to build. We're making the claim today, as the Bible says, in the beginning, God is what makes most sense. Now, bold heading number three, kind of make this a bit more of a pastoral touch now, is what do we, what do we learn about God? You say a lot of kind of apologetics so far. But in the beginning, God is a claim of his authority. You say there aren't other gods. Uh, no other thing is pushing him around. That really what we see is we inhabit a creation that belongs to him, that we're his creatures. And what this means is that God is beyond time, that he's beyond matter, he's not influenced. And you think about a claim like this, you say people ask the question, well, we just prayed all together before the sermon. You remember, say all of us, hundreds of us, just at Providence Church alone, we bowed our heads, we prayed to God about our lives, we prayed for our loved ones. Say, how does God hear all those prayers? You say, well, look at what the Bible says about how God relates to time, that he's outside of time. He's kind of, he's above it, he's beyond it. So we can say with Boethius, uh, Boethius, the famous um, uh, theologian, of some millennia ago, Boethius would talk about how God has, is eternally present. That whether it's past, present, or future, it's all like now to God. How can that be? Because God invented time. He invented matter. Do you see that? He's beyond time and matter. And what we want to do is he said we always want to bring down that distinction between the creator and the creation. We always want to smush it together, say, make God one of the created things. Prove him to me. Put him in a box. Show me where he is, as if he's just one of our buddies or something. No, what the Bible says, there's a cre creator who's so far beyond us, who exists in so many more dimensions than we do, who's infinitely wise and infinitely powerful. That's how he's revealed. So we should have no problem with how a being like that can hear everyone's prayers at once and how everything can be eternally present to him. Now, this creator-creation divide, say, boy, have we made a mess of it. Say, we've forgotten about our creator. How often do we kind of plow through our week, and we look around, we take in God's creation, we don't even think of him. Says, we're going to see in the coming weeks that we've all made a mess of this. And we've not honored our creator in that famous line. We've worshipped the creation rather than the creator. We love our things and our stuff. Forgetting about who he is, 
And that's why it's wonderful to be reminded in the second reading that did you notice when I read John's gospel what John does with Jesus? So the first words of the Bible again, in the beginning God. The first words of John's gospel, in the beginning was the word. And later that word became flesh. In other words, what does John do? John puts the person of Jesus, his personality, who he is, he puts him back in Genesis 1. That Jesus, being the eternal Son of God, was there. He's the one who spoke creation, right, at God's command, spoke creation into existence. And he's the one who comes to redeem us. Say, all of us, we realize today that we inhabit um, a world that belongs to God, that we've made a mess of it, and that we always feel, I love the word, maybe estranged. That in our sin we feel estranged from God and estranged from our setting. How do we get right again? Thank goodness the Lord Jesus came for us. Say, he was there all along. Say, in all the history of human rebellion from Genesis 1 up to the present that he's been there. In the beginning he was there. And he became flesh and dwelt among us and sacrificed himself on the cross for our transgressions to bring us back to God, to restore us, right? And ultimately looking forward to the end when creation itself is restored. Friends, I know this was a lot of information today, but it's so important. You see, the doctrine of creation is not something to be embarrassed about. To say, oh gosh, you know, I, I think the scientists are really, you know, we, we just have this embarrassing narrative about in the beginning God created, that's all we have. I hope we see today that that makes so much sense for everyone. That we have a good God. We live in his world. He gave us our reason that we're to be in this arena, we could call it a theater of his glory, that all, all creation is about him. And even as we've made a mess about that, a mess of that, he, he wasn't lost on him, that he sent Jesus to redeem us. In him is light and truth and grace. So may we see that this week, we'll continue to build. This is a text about God. In the beginning, God. He's beyond things. May we worship him and not his creation and delight in the fact that we're restored in Jesus and one day hope for all the created order to be restored in him and uh, things to have their rightful place. So I'll invite the, um, the gentleman back up to lead us in some closing uh, hymns as we think about this. Father, thank you very much for the clear claim that we have really two choices. That You say there's the naturalistic claim that says somehow everything, nothing produced everything without any mind and without space. And Lord, help us to see that if we really operate on that principle that we lose everything, that we lose reason itself, that we lose an explanation for consciousness, that we can get really confused on ethics, that we're like those who last week would build a house on, on the sandy foundation of our own lives, kind of buffeted around on the waves. Alternatively, help us to see the majesty of these first five words, in the beginning God created, that you are always there, you always will be there, and you've given us reason, the beauty of nature, that we're dependent upon you. And Father, even to pick up John's gospel to say the Lord Jesus was there, that you knew that we would make a mess of things, that we'd forget about you, and yet we've been bought back. Help us to delight in that. Help us to be on the way of, of contributing to the restoration of all things. So may this sink in this week. In the beginning, God created. May we not uh, be shy about that, but to say this actually is our delight. For Christ's sake, amen. Mm -hmm.